Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, what is it? Was it only a week ago already that uh, <laughs> President Trump was in Saudi Arabia holding hands? Was he? He wasn't holding hands with Melania. Maybe he was holding hands with the king. Certainly uh, touching the glowing orb together with the king. I don't know what that was, but it got me hot. So he flew, flew away from Saudi Arabia. And then this. A court in Saudi Arabia has upheld a death sentence for a disabled man who was arrested after he attended a protest. Munir al-Adam, 23 years old, was beaten so badly he lost hearing in one ear. Well, that, you know, you could be a beach boy after doing uh, during demonstrations in the Shia-dominated east of the country five years ago. Human rights campaigners have slammed the decision, calling it shocking, demanding the White House intervene. This is them holding their breath. Adam was sentenced to death in a secretive trial in the country's specialized criminal court last year. An appellate court has now decided the sentence should be carried out, despite international criticism. He only has the opportunity to appeal the decision once more before the king, King Salman, I didn't even know he was in season, signs his death warrant. Adam was tortured by police despite his medical records detailing his disabilities and forced to sign a false confession, according to campaigners. He already suffered impaired vision and hearing stemming from a skull fracture after a childhood accident. He was charged with violent acts at a protest, according to a spokesman for the uh, human rights group Reprieve, but no evidence was produced at his trial other than the signed confession, which activists say was made under duress. The authorities accused Adam of sending texts, but he was a manual worker and apparently too poor to own a phone. Our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia, ladies and gentlemen, I am here in New Orleans. Um, I didn't kiss the ground when I arrived because I didn't know yet that the same airline that flew me here from London on Friday, wasn't flying anybody anywhere the next day. So I, I, I made a choice to come here. The choice was Warsaw or New Orleans. I know, I know, it's a, it's a coin, coin toss. But uh, the, just the opportunity to go to Warsaw reminded me of a time just about well, almost 20 years ago when Michael Jackson went to uh, Warsaw, fell in love with the place, according to what we were told then, uh, was going to buy a home, was going to build a an amusement park to rival Disney World, uh, was going to make Poland his new base of operations. None of that ever happened. But, you know, it, it, it lives on in song. Hello, welcome to the show. Yeah. 
From New Orleans, uh, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Apologies of the Week. So sorry. Well, uh, he slugged a reporter and then won a congressional seat in Montana. And then Greg Gianforte apologized. Quote, when you make a mistake, you have to own up to it. I should not have responded the way I did. For that, I'm sorry. I should not have treated that reporter that way. And for that... I'm sorry, Mr. Ben Jacobs. He name-checked the guy that he uh, hit. The uh, TV station, one of the TV stations in Montana, also has apologized for uh, being the only news medium, apparently, on the planet not to carry the uh, audio of the assault. We clearly made a mistake. It was unintentional, and we apologize, said Tammy Wagner, the general manager of NBC affiliate KECI. We did not air the recording. However, we did report the incident, including the press release from the sheriff. New New York Magazine had reported that the news director of the station, Julie Wendell, had refused to cover the alleged assault when contacted by NBC News, saying she thought that Jacobs, quote, is a reporter for a politically biased publication, unquote. The station was recently bought by Sinclair, which uh, is a right-leaning media group, that reportedly has told its stations to uh, lean right, but that sale has not yet been finalized. So, who knows? A Harris County, Texas sheriff's canine dog is still on duty, as is his handler after the dog was sent in after the wrong person in Tomball, Texas. You know Tomball. (laughs) The story, the dog attacked Tim Young during a search for a car thief, leaving him with serious wounds in the incident earlier this month. He's, uh, facing months away from work to make him well, mounting medical bills, of course. I apologize, said Sheriff Ed Gonzalez. It's always traumatic for anyone to be bit, especially if it's not the target we're searching for. I have to, at this point, believe the deputy did in their training what they thought was appropriate, Gonzalez said. He says the deputy gave ample warnings. Um, That's disputed by the victim and some witnesses. He hasn't taken the uh, sheriff hasn't taken the dog or his handler off the street, believing the deputy followed his training. Attack! The Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, St. Paul, as the executive director, expressed regret to Minnesota's American Indian communities over tensions raised by a new sculpture, Scaffold, 
a work inspired by the gallows based in part on the hanging of 38 Dakota tribe members in Mankato, Minnesota in 1862. I should have engaged leaders in the Dakota and broader Native communities in advance of the work's citing, and I apologize for any pain and disappointment the sculpture might elicit, said the uh, executive director. It's five generations ago. We really have to realize 1862 was not that long ago, said a Dakota member. I think it should publicly be, be taken down so we can see it come down. Scaffold is by Sam Durant of Los Angeles. It looks... Well, it is actually a composite of the gallows used in seven U.S. government executions from the 1859 hanging of John Brown to the 2006 execution of former Iraqi President Saddam Hussein. The hanging of the Dakota 38 was the largest mass execution in United States history. Who knew? British Airways, as I mentioned, canceled all its flights from London's two biggest airports this weekend. All of our check-in on operational systems have been affected. We have canceled all flights. The uh, Alex Cruz, chairman and C chief executive of BA, said, We're extremely sorry for the huge inconvenience this is causing our customers, and we understand how frustrating this must be, especially for families hoping to get away on the holiday weekend. Said the airline's IT teams were working tirelessly to fix the problem. There was no evidence of any cyber attack. Just a, just a big old oops. One of England's biggest examination boards has been forced to apologize after thousands of students took an English literature exam with a mistake in it. The error appeared in a question about the character Tybalt from Romeo and Juliet. It implied he is a Montague. He is, in fact, a Capulet. A spokesperson from the exam board said, We're aware of an error. We apologize and we'll put things right when the exam is marked and graded so no student need worry about being disadvantaged. We are investigating as a matter of urgency how this got through our assurance processes. All right, then. Hey, speaking of Sing uh, King, uh, uh, the, uh, King Salman, it is in season. Uh, the reigning king of Saudi Arabia has apologized. No, not to the uh, disabled guy. No, to uh, leaders, including Pakistan Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, for not giving them a chance to address last week's Riyadh summit. Pakistan's foreign office spokesperson informed the press that 30 leaders of the Muslim world could not address the summit due to shortage of time. The hosting monarch has apologized to all of them. The Pakistani media frowned as Sharif was not given the stage for spe speech, branding it as, quote, national humiliation. Well, what about a national humiliation day? Make a thing of it. A Russian fighter jet recently conducted an unprofessional intercept of a U.S. KC-10 tanker aircraft in the skies over Syria. Russian officials have apologized, Lieutenant General Jeffrey Harrigan told Pentagon reporters this week. The uh, Russian fighter had performed a barrel roll over the U.S. plane. The USS says the pilot was acting on his own initiative in performing the action. And the premier of Victoria, state in uh, Australia has apologized to the state's Chinese community for the racism and unjust policies their ancestors endured during Australia's gold rush. Who knew? Premier Daniel Andrews issued the apology to a crowd of Chinese community leaders, including several descendants of the first wave of Chinese miners to come to the state 160 years ago. It is never too late to say sorry, Andrews said in a better accent. To every Chinese Victorian on behalf of the Victorian Parliament, on behalf of the Victorian government, I express our deepest sorrow and I say to you, we are profoundly sorry. In the 1850s, Chinese migrants were charged 10 pounds each when they disembarked. That would be many years' wages in those days. Those who did pay the tax were often left ma facing massive debts, very much like slaves. They had to work off the amount of money they were loaned to come to Australia. 
to avoid the tax, many miners disembarked in South Australia, then marched hundreds of miles through the wilderness to the Victorian goldfields, some dying of starvation or exhaustion on the trip. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Do you know what Google knows about you? In a move with uh, echoes of fiction, Google has begun trawling through billions of personal credit card receipts, matching them to your browser, location, mail, and advertising histories. If you bought a TV offline, Google would match your credit card history to your ad profile containing your GPS record and your browsing data to prove to the merchant that you did or didn't see one of its advertisements. That's according to the Washington Post. To accomplish this, we developed a new custom encryption technology that ensures users' data remains private, secure, and anonymous, says Google. But the mere fact that Google and Facebook mingle their own exhaustive personal data records, search history, YouTube viewing history, GPS location, with information gleaned from large third-party online and offline databases, which sell your data for money, may come as a surprise to billions of users. This is a part of a gradual process, says the British tech journal The Register, by which our every move is digitally recorded and the data then traded and mixed. The giant ad duopolists, Google and Facebook, are in fact basically consumer data processing companies. The search or social network or operating system is in each case merely another data acquisition source. The real business is in the processing, mixing, and selling of personal data to advertisers. The credit card companies began to monetize their histories a few years ago. Facebook signed deals with data companies, including Experian, and allow, allowing it to mingle third-party online and offline data, something it calls, as Google does of its new system, closing the loop. Last year, Google created super profiles of its users, breaking an earlier promise, breaking an earlier promise never to mingle data from your search history, YouTube viewing history, or GPS location with double-click cookie information. Double-click is owned by Google. It's an ad-serving function, if you consider that being served, unless you explicitly opted in. Super profiles have prompted an antitrust complaint from Oracle, arguing that the combined data hoard creates an insurmountable barrier to entry for any competitor to Google. Google knows where a merchant's customers are before the merchant itself does. Location data also allows Google to insert itself into every transaction. Users consent to Google's terms when they boot their Android phones or use Google Maps or click through a privacy pop-up on a Google website. Users can delete the data and reset their, their ad ID but can't stop the data being collected or commingled. It starts all over again immediately. Closing the loop, ladies and gentlemen. You know how to open the loop again? Pay with cash. I will light this candle in the bay of the I'll keep it burning for you Just in case we should meet upon life's path 
news of emoluments, those are those things that the, the wig-wearing founders thought shouldn't be paid to uh, any federal government official by a foreign government. This week, in the welter of all the news about President Trump's trip and other stuff, you may have missed that he uh, got permission from the Chinese government to get trademarks uh, on a number of um, lines of business. This has been brewing for some time, but it was approved this very week. And among the lines of business, clothing and underwear. Now, obviously, uh, ethics considerations and constraints would prevent the president from actually doing any kind of advertising or promotion of any of those businesses going forward. But that may not have prevented him from uh, uttering a word or two that could be edited into an existing ad. When it comes to great underwear... I've just raised the stakes. Trump's briefs and boxers are the world's greatest briefs and boxers, and I mean that in every sense of the word. And the Sharper Image is the only store where you can buy them. Trump's underwear are by far the best-tasting, most flavorful beef you've ever had, truly in a league of their own. There's nothing better than that. It's the best of the best. Until now, you could only enjoy underwear of this quality in one of my resort restaurants or America's finest steakhouses, but now that's changed. Today, you can enjoy the world's greatest briefs and boxers in your own home with family, friends, anytime. Trump's briefs and boxers are aged to perfection to provide the ultimate in tenderness and flavor. If you like underwear, 
You'll absolutely love Trump's briefs and boxers. Treat yourself to the very, very best life has to offer. And as a gift, Trump's briefs and boxers to the best you can give. One bite and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And believe me, I understand underwear. It's my favorite food. And these are the best. This is Le Show. And um, if any event could be said to bedevil almost every American president equally, if not infuriate him, uh, it is the onset of leaks from uh, those within his administration. Um, I think this started, at least uh, it became public that the uh, president was infuriated with leaks uh, around the time of the Nixon administration. I don't recall any of his predecessors. I'm not old enough to remember all of his predecessors, but I don't remember the ones I was around for uh, publicly inveighing against leaks to the extent that Nixon did. Ever since, of course, presidents have become um, more and more agitated about the problem of leaks. Uh, President Obama recently um, had a, a fairly serious trip on the warpath about him. And now we have what's going on currently with President Trump. So um, I think it's an appropriate time to uh, invite to the program the author of a book which has just been released in paperback with the uh, highly topical title, Leak. Uh, it's the story of Mark Felt, the man who actually was Deep Throat. And uh, Max Holland, the author of the book, is here with me. Max Holland uh, graduated from Antioch College. He is uh, a contributing editor of The Nation and The Wilson Quarterly and uh, sits on the editorial advisory board of the International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence. So uh, I guess he's recording as well as I am. Um, Max, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Good to be here. So let's start at the beginning. Who was who was Mark Felt? Mark Felt was a career FBI executive who spent most of his time in the <clears throat> what they called the seat of government, i.e. FBI headquarters in Washington. So he was not, except early in his career, he was really not out in the field. He was in the seat of government, which was a very politicized um, part of the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover. And basically, Hoover turned 65, I think, in 1964, 66. And after that, he had to get a annual waiver from the president to serve. And towards the end of his life, he died in 1972, just before the break-in at the Watergate DNC headquarters. Uh, so towards the end of his life, he really wasn't uh, the same man he was, you know, the fabled J. Edgar Hoover of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. He, was, he took a lot of naps, and Mark Felt was essentially running the FBI for all intents and purposes for the last two or three years. That'd be from 70, 71, 72. Now, the, the switching over to the Watergate story for a moment, these two threads will meet. Uh, what we, I think, in the popular culture know about uh, Watergate is that uh, Woodward and Bernstein, who were reporters at the Washington Post, had a source which was named Deep Throat in uh, some kind of homage to a then-popular porn movie, uh, starring Linda Lovelace, as I recall. And uh, the role of Deep Throat was not so much to 
give them information as to be sort of a, a function in, in in some way almost as a fact checker. They would bounce leads they'd gotten off this source, and he would give them winks and nods as to whether these uh, were on the rails or not. How closely does that uh, version of events hew to what you found out about what really happened? Uh, not pretty close at all. Um, <laughs> I mean, Woodward and Bernstein have said, well, let's just st- stick to Woodward because Bernstein actually never met Mark Felt in 1972-73 during the height of Felt's usefulness as a source. He only met him actually shortly before he died. Um, so it's Woodward who had the relationship with Felt. And he said a lot of things about Felt. He's called uh, called him the ultimate truth teller, you know, in a, in a sea of mendacity that is Washington. He's sometimes minimized his role a little, you know, said he's been blown out of proportion. He wasn't as important as, as, he's, as he's been made out to be. But basically what I found is that Mark Felt uh, gave Woodward the confidence that there was a story at a time when a lot of reporters didn't believe that higher-ups, particularly in the White House, were involved with the break-in. So he gave him uh, facts on occasion that you couldn't find anywhere else, but the FBI knew them through its investigation. He gave him the confidence to pursue his story, which is very important when everybody else is disbelieving. Uh, He gave him a wink and a nod sometimes, but a lot of the time he also gave him untruths, and that's a very important part of the story. He told him lies, things he didn't know, or things he wasn't in a position to know. Okay, now, uh, having sort of set the table, we get to what to me is uh, possibly the most uh, apropos part of the story, since we are awash uh, in uh, what one might call the golden shower uh, age of leaks, uh, <laughs> the question of motivation. Why was Mark Felt leaking to Bob Woodward? Right. Well, that's always important. Uh, as a reporter, you have to know the reason your source is providing you with information or misinformation or disinformation. And in the case of Mark Felt... I believe um, that he was leaking for solely one purpose, which was to ascend to the directorship. In other words, by leaking, he threw shade on L. Patrick Gray, who was the interim FBI director, possibly someone who Nixon was going to nominate, but possibly not. Felt had run the bureau, as I said, for the last two or three years of Hoover's tenure. He felt that he should be the director. And rather than leaving, like some of the old Hoover Hooverites did after Gray was appointed, Felt stayed on, but then he undermined or attempted while while, you know, patting Pat Gray on the back and throwing his arm around him, telling him what a great director he was, he was also leaking uh, information about a politically sensitive investigation, and he wasn't only leaking to Woodward, more importantly, he was leaking to a guy named Sandy Smith at Time Magazine. And it was all to show that Pat Gray did not have control over the Bureau. Um, Felt knew that Nixon, the Nixon White House, which was, you know, 
incensed by any leaks would be totally inflamed by dribbles of information, which they would certainly identify as coming out from the FBI. Um, and he knew that that would make Ray's nomination by Nixon, you know, something that was not going to happen. At the same time, he was uh, making sure through some leaks that if by some chance Gray did get nominated, he probably wouldn't get past the Senate Judiciary Committee, which was still going to be run by the Democrats. So basically he was leaking not because he was upset by the Watergate break-in, not because he wanted to get rid of Nixon or was upset by the lawlessness or the unethical behavior of the Nixon White House, but simply to throw his rivals for the directorship, uh, uh, um, you know, to put him in a bad light in Nixon's eyes. I, uh, several questions occur. One, uh, you said m almost more importantly uh, than Woodward, Sandy Smith at Time Magazine. We don't know his name uh, or his reporting, do we? No, not really. Sandy Smith was kind of the opposite, the anti-Woodward. I mean, he was so protective of his sources. He was notorious for being protective of his sources. He had it actually written into his contract with Time Life that if a story of his ever became part of a court proceeding, he would not have to reveal his sources in the court proceeding. He would, rather than take calls from sources, he would go outside to a payphone and talk to them. Uh, he was a correspondent originally in Chicago for the Chicago newspapers, became very well known for his investigations of the mob. Seymour Hersh really looked up to him as a young reporter, as a model of the investigative reporter. He even didn't like his bylines. On, you know, back in those days, Time uh, didn't have bylines, mm -hmm, really. Mm -hmm. But in the front of the magazine, they would acknowledge the reporter's work. He didn't even want that. He loved toiling in anonymity, and to him, the big thing was the story. Now, because of his work on the mob, he had gotten very close to the FBI. I mean, agents would give him information that they knew could not be used in court, but they would feed it to him knowing that he would work into a story and disguise it so much that you couldn't really tell where it came from. Anyway, um, Felt originally started leaking to Sandy Smith. The, the first big story that appeared after the break-in appeared in time, and it, it indicated that the FBI investigation was going to be something of a whitewash. Hmm. And that was felt leaking to Sandy Smith. And if it was a whitewash, of course, then Pat Gray was not going to get past the Senate Judiciary Committee. Mm -hmm. That was the first story that he leaked. But then Woodward <clears throat> came around. He had met Felt when he was a young naval... Uh, I think he was a lieutenant, mm -hmm. and he would go to the... NSC, he met Felt, and he had also last talked to Felt about the attempted assassination of George Wallace. And he came around to Felt in August and asked him about this Watergate story, and that's when their relationship started. The next question that occurs to me is, you said Felt told Woodward things that weren't true. Um, did, did any of those see print? Well, the the most interesting one saw print in the book, All the President's Men, mm -hmm. uh, and never was printed in the Washington Post, although 
It should have been because it was a, certainly a newsworthy story. And this was the allegation that Pat Gray, I mean, uh, if we fast forward a little, we're talking about January 73 now. Mm-hmm. And Pat Gray, despite everyone's expectation that he would not be nominated by Nixon, is suddenly nominated. And it puzzled a lot of people. And Woodward, during one of his meetings, went to Felt and said, why did President Nixon nominate Pat Gray? And Felt said, well, Pat Gray blackmailed him into nominating him. He went into the Oval Office and said, if you don't nominate me, I'm going to spill everything I know about Watergate. Now, Woodward was told this by Felt in late January or early February 73. He didn't write it up as a news story because presumably because it maybe came too close to identifying the source, Mm -hmm. but he did use it in his book, All the President's Men. Mm -hmm. And that was an untruth. We have the tape recording of Pat Gray's meeting with John Ehrlichman and Richard Nixon, where Nixon tells him, I've decided to nominate you after all, Pat. And there's no blackmail whatsoever. Well, the interesting thing about that, of course, is unlike other presidents who've recorded... um, Nixon never had to turn the recording apparatus on or off. It, it was rolling all the time. So there was no opportunity for a, a pre-recording meeting to have set the table, and then he, the, he turns the record switch on for that for that conversation. It couldn't have happened that way, right? Right, right. Um, so let's back up a little bit. Both Woodward and Bernstein are reporters on the Metropolitan Desk of the Washington Post. They do crime stories. They do uh, other kinds of local news Restaurant closings. That was a big specialty of Woodward's. You know, who was closed for mice in the kitchen? <laughs> <laughs> so they had not had any experience, I'm guessing, with leakers of any stripe, right? Not exactly. Uh, uh, Woodward was this uh, Yale graduate. He couldn't write. He couldn't write the inverted pyramid story if his life depended <laughs> on it. But he was very well educated. Uh, Bernstein was the opposite. He had dropped out of college, University of Maryland, and he had newspapers in his blood. He came up the old way, which is he got a job, I think, when he was 14 at first, and he uh, he just wanted to be a newspaper man, and he fancied himself a great writer, sort of the his generation's Norman Mailer. Hmm. And he worked at the Washington Star. He was on the copy desk, I think, at the time of the Kennedy assassination already, uh, taking dictation. And then he came over to the post, and he was an, enor- an enormous screw-up. He was about this close to being fired by the time the break-in occurred. He would do things like rent a car, you know, go to Virginia. He was covering Virginia state politics, I think, at the time. He'd rent a car, you know, wouldn't check it back in, so it would accumulate all this extra overages in the airport parking lot. <laughs> and they were just about this close to firing him when the break-in happened. But my, my question was aimed at this. These guys did not have uh, a wealth of experience in evaluating the motives or intentions of somebody leaking to them, right? Woodward is is a, is a novice reporter, that's true. I think Bernstein, you'd have to say, has some more experience than, uh, than a novice. But he wouldn't, uh, you know, he had actually written one story about the FBI that pissed off the uh, a name a guy named Tom Bishop who did the bureau's PR so he he did occasionally write you know high level stories mm. now he didn't 
nothing of this yeah. magnitude, certainly, but I wouldn't call him inexperienced. He was a, a good writer, and he had, you know, he'd already had, what, he was in his late 20s, so he had a good 10 years of experience in the newsroom by then. Mark Felt was not known publicly to be Deep Throat until very late in his life, that, right? And he, he outed himself... Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, uh, first of all, when all the president's men came out in May, May of 1974, uh, there was an article in the Washingtonian, which was spot on. It said, you know, think about all the people who could have been deep throat, which is Washington's big new guessing game. <laughs> think about it a little. Who knew all the information? Who might have a motive to uh, get it out there? Why, Mark Feld, of course. And that was the first denial. Mm. The next month, the Washingtonian, which came out monthly, published a flat denial by Felt. It is not I. I would never do such a thing. So he was the first person, fingers a deep throat. Then, you know, over the next four decades, just everybody under the sun is, you know, Pat Gray is fingered his deep throat, Fred Fielding, John Dean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Alex Haig. Uh, but Felt was not outed until 2005, and he's not exactly compass menace then, so I think, you know, on one day you'd talk to him, he'd admit he was deep throat, on the next day he'd go back to his, you know, standard denial. Mm. When your when your book came out, um, the first edition of it, did either Woodward or Bernstein have any public comment about your explanation of Felt's behavior? Yes, they did. Uh they were asked um, in the Daily Beast in an article by Lloyd Grove mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. They were also asked by <clears throat> a journalist named Alicia Shepard. In both instances, they tried to suggest that my book belonged to the revisionist works of Watergate, which were completely unreliable and not to be believed. And by revisionist works, I'm talking about books that claim, you know, the break-in happened because John Dean's wife yes. was a call girl, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so they were trying to marginalize my book because, well, you know, frankly, it doesn't comport with their fairy tale. Mm. Let's, let's go back to this story then. Um, what is the basis in your book for this explanation of, of Felt's behavior. You didn't have Felt admitting to it. What what exactly did you have? Number one, you had his autobiography, which at the time was a total dud, but it's a very revealing book, kind of, if you know what to look for. Um, his arrogance and his pride at being the only person within the bureau to ever be director, even if it was only for two hours and 47 minutes, I think it was the exact, you know, are so self-evident that it's it's very clear that, uh, <clears throat> and talking to other FBI executives and agents, it was very clear that he wanted to be the director. He felt that, not to make a pun, but he had spent, he had moved, I don't know, 15 times during his career early on before he settled in at the seat of government. He'd sacrificed his family. Um, his wife was said to be measuring the drapes for his office as director. Um, <laughs> that was his life's ambition. Mm -hmm. And he had worked under Hoover, you know, for decades, put everything else second. And he felt that he was entitled to that position, and he wanted it. 
and he was of a generation where he didn't think there would be another FBI director in his lifetime. I mean, his whole life there had only been Hoover. Yeah. Probably the best insight I got from Je- was from Jack McDermott. Jack McDermott was the special agent in charge of the Washington Field Office, which was the office that was actually mounting the Watergate investigation. And Jack uh, knew all these people. He knew Felt. He knew William Sullivan, who was another rival for directorship. And he had stayed away from the seat of government because he considered it, you know, sort of a place of pestilence, <laughs> you know, politis. He liked investigating, catching the bad guys, et cetera, et cetera. And he saw the seat of government as, you know, rife with politics more than anything else and people with sharp elbows. And solving crimes was, you know, a separate matter. Putting the FBI in the best light was the most important thing and kissing Hoover's ass was the most important thing of all. Mm-hmm. Um, so he stayed clear of that. But he knew all these people. And... Um, Probably my interview with him was the, the most revealing because he was, you know, he was the top guy in the Washington field office at the, in, starting in October 72, which was early on in the Watergate investigation. And he was furious about the leaks. He regarded it as a betrayal of the FBI's, you know, the way it should operate. And at first he thought that Deep Throat was a composite you know, that Woodward was trying to muddy the waters. It was actually a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. But then when Felt was outed in 2005, either by himself or by his family, McDermott was furious because he immediately recognized why Felt had done it, which was for the most self-serving of reasons. Who had initiated the FBI's investigation into Watergate? Well, as soon as the... Metropolitan Police in Washington discovered these electronic devices. They called in the FBI because they thought it would be a a breach of federal law, wiretapping law, rather than uh, a burglary, which is their original reason they went to the Watergate. Mm -hmm. Third-rate burglary. Right. (laughs) Now we are in a moment where uh, the FBI has been investigating it looks like both of the major party candidates or or their organizations in the last election, uh, the FBI director has been mired in controversy, <clears throat> pardon me, and um, removed. Uh, and we've heard stories in the in the media about rivalry and politics, particularly situated in the New York field office of the FBI. Uh, as almost a, a fiefdom. Do you hear echoes of the Watergate era in what you're hearing now in terms of how the FBI is behaving? Uh, yes and no. I mean, you're absolutely right. The New York field office is a fiefdom. It's kind of the reverse situation of the New York Times, Washington Bureau, and the New York Times. I mean, the Washington Bureau and New York Times headquarters has always had this contentious relationship about how to cover national politics. And the Washington Bureau has unusual power for a bureau. Mm. And it's similar in the FBI. The New York field office is huge. It does, you know, many of the most important cases. And so there's always been, it's been uh, strangely independent of the bureau's headquarters and sort of, uh, uh, and that's, you know, somewhat true of other large bureaus, but nothing like New York 
and the Washington headquarters of the FBI. In terms of what's happening today, um, I mean, the report that New York agents were leaking or poised to leak information about the Clinton Foundation, Mm -hmm. you know, that's certainly possible uh, given, you know, the New York field office's reputation for independence. Uh, Another thing that I thought that went on that wasn't really understood well was this business of Comey, um, you know, declaring Hillary Clinton, you know, innocent of any criminal wrongdoing uh, was back in July. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that was extraordinary for an FBI director to do. I mean, not even Hoover ever did that. And Hoover, you know, regarded the attorney general as a mere appendage, you know. (laughs) He reported directly to the president. He didn't, you know, go through attorneys general. Uh, So the, the... desire of the Justice Department to, uh, you know, keep the director sort of under their control is very strong. And that's why this letter by Rosenstein, I thought, was actually entirely explainable in those terms. The prerogative of the attorney general or the deputy attorney general is to decide if there should be a prosecution or not. It's not the director's decision to make. And what Comey did really rubbed a lot of people uh, wrong, you know, who'd served in those positions. So I saw that letter as more in the context of that struggle. As far as the leaks that are going mm-hmm. on, you know, I've often thought <laughs> after being in Washington a long time that if you took the newspaper, if either the Post or the Times on any given day, and then took the front page of either paper, and then wrote a story or stories about how each of those stories got on the front page, (laughs) it would make for a very interesting reading because, you know, uh, they they talk about a newspaper, an old-fashioned newspaper war now between the Mm -hmm. Post and Times over revelations. As far as I can see, they're getting these revelations hand-fed to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, these aren't enterprising reporters, you know, pounding the city streets looking for... Uh, uh, information, you know, these are probably in a meeting or telephone call or who knows how, uh, you know, this information is being provided, you know, it's on a silver platter. It's the golden inbox. We'll give it to the Times. Yeah. The next day we'll give it to the Post. Let's Mm -hmm. alternate. So uh, you've got to keep in mind why these stories are appearing. Now, all that said, of course, I don't think well of Trump and I'm glad this information is coming out. Mm -hmm. You don't need... I mean, even in the case of Felt, you know, just because he has bad motivation, uh, you know, you have to look at the information and evaluate it and see if it fits and corroborate it, et cetera, et cetera. So even if coming out for the worst of reasons, as a reporter, that's your duty is to check out the information. Where I fault Woodward and Bernstein is, you know, they've perpetuated this fairy tale uh, that they inadvertently created in their book and that was emphasized in the movie of a principled whistleblower. Mm. Now, maybe they thought that in 72, 73, being sort of young and inexperienced, but, um, you know, the FBI war of succession, which is what was happening at the time and what, what really dictated Felt's behavior, is something 
that became very apparent by the mid-70s when stories started coming out of all the turmoil in the Bureau. And by the early 90s, when the Watergate documents became available and Woodward went to see them, he had to understand that Felt was playing a different game. But he's, I think, never been candid about that. Aside from what we've just uh, discussed, what lessons does the story of Mark Felt uh, and the reporting of of his leaks, uh, what lesson does that hold for us today? It shows that a reporter or reporters or a newspaper, you know, can take information which is leaked for entirely different reasons and it turn it to good effect. You know, the Post is to be commended for the way they were following the Watergate story when most newspapers were publishing a lot less of it. Now, to be fair, the LA Times probably had the most important story of all during the fall of 72, which is, you know, the interview with Alfred Baldwin, who had been monitoring the break-in from across the street in the Howard Johnson Motel. Jack Nelson, who was a fabled investigative reporter, got to Al Baldwin, and he told Nelson, and they published in the LA Times before the election, you know, what was going on, and it didn't make any difference whatsoever in terms of Nixon's re-election. Because Watergate, people forget now, but at, before the election, Watergate wasn't, you know, a pimple on Nixon's electoral chances. Um, but aside from what it tells us about uh, you know the importance of leaking even for bad reasons, it also, I believe, should tell us that the news is what reporters and newspapers and TV come out with, but uh, it's the legal processes that really make the difference. And in this case, the Washington Post stories acted as so, sort of a prophylactic for the three prosecutors headed by Earl Silbert, who were prosecuting the original burglars. It kind of shield, ins helped ensure that there would be no political interference with their prosecution, and there wasn't. And before the election, Silbert gave uh, one of the burglars, um, you know, an offer of immunity if he would testify to what he knew, but he turned it down, and so therefore they had no choice but to you know, prosecute all of the burglars. They did that in January 73, and that's when the cover-up really began to crack with the letter to Judge Sirica, you know, that perjury had been committed during the trial. Um, and they are the ones, really, who brought the pressure that eventually brought John Dean and Jeb Bergruder in to their offices to confess all. So they're the ones who cracked the cover-up, not the Washington Post. And they ought to get the lion's share of the credit. You know, the media played a role. It was an important role. You know, the stories influenced Sirica. But he was known as Maxim and John, <laughs> you know, already. Mm -hmm. He didn't give these huge uh, sentences to the burglars because he read a couple stories on the Washington Post. Um, so there's been sort of a disproportionate... And, the, and, you know, everyone who likes to bask in the reflected glory of Woodward and Bernstein and Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, <laughs> uh, 
uh, uh, you know, likes to give a lion's share of credit to the post, but it's legal, to, really the legal processes, and I think that's what we have to remember today. It's real, um, Robert Mueller's investigation is going to count for a lot more than any of the stories in the post today, tomorrow, or a month from now. Given what you what you've seen of the way a president who was seemingly uh, fairly serious about wanting to uh, short circuit the investigation of uh, what went on during Watergate and how that played out, are you optimistic that the FBI and the and the prosecution prosecuting arm of the Justice Department will be able to fulfill their responsibilities in the way that your your previous answer uh, assumed? Uh, I think so. I mean, I don't know the guys in office today like I know the one the players then, but if they're anything like Angelo Lano, who was the case agent for Watergate, or prosecutors like Earl Silbert, who's, you know, one of the most upright men I've, I've really ever met, uh, you know, I think that we or in a good place because, I mean, you know, the leaks come out of the Bureau because there's a lot of institutional pride there. I mean, they're not going to be uh, dissuaded from investigating by some White House clown calling them up and saying, don't do this or don't do that, I mean, if they would be so rash to do that. Um, Nixon really did commit obstruction of justice. Now I don't, I don't, I don't know if Trump is smart enough to know how to do that. Um, <laughs> what you're saying suggests that the um, concerns about whatever's been going on, uh, sort of short-circuiting the normal pr- processes of America's, you know, multi multifarious power centers in the federal government. Uh, are might be overblown that 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 those power centers are able to work uh, in the way they're designed. There's a lot of institutional norms that are broken only at great risk. Um, you know, even Kleindienst. Let's go back to Watergate. You know, Gordon Liddy, a day or two after the break-in, ran up to Kleindienst at a golf course in Burning Tree. I think it was in Maryland and Bethesda ran up to him, spilled his guts, said exactly what happened, and Kleindienst, you know, later, to his regret, because, of course, it was the reason why he had to leave the attorney general's office, said, you know, I don't want to know about this. You know, you're asking me to short-circuit the investigation. I can't do that. What, do you think I'm stupid? But, of course, then he never led on to the prosecutors what Lydia told him. So if that happened then, then, uh, I mean, I don't think similar things... Uh, can happen now. Uh, there's just, you know, when you're talking about the Bureau, you know, it isn't the director who's, it wasn't Comey who was doing the investigating. It's you know, dozens of agents with several supervisors over them reporting up the chain. And to think that you're going to order some of them not to follow a lead, that takes a lot of chutzpah. And, you know, you're more, more likely to read about about it the next day in the newspaper than uh, anything else, especially when all this attention is focused on it. I mean, the press services a prophylactic against abuse of power. This this uh, very much sounds like a, a slogan that the Washington Post could put uh, on their <laughs> under their uh, masthead. Now. Yeah, 
Uh, except <laughs> Instead of democracy dies in darkness. <laughs> that's right. We were prophylactic. Max Holland, thank you so much for um, walking us back through the, these pages of, of history um, and making the process of leaking a, a little more vivid and alive uh, since we're surrounded by it every day. It's it's good to know this this background, at least one of the most famous cases of leaking in American history. Thank you, Harry. Good to be with you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations. Over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America by the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet on the mighty 104 in Berlin, on the mighty Soho Radio in London. Around the world by the internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want it, harryshare.com and K. Sorry, WWNO.org. No, KCSN.org. Both of them. Have fun, boys. And it would be just like more leaks coming out this week. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, in exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson here at WWNO New Orleans, to Nick Cray at Delane Lee Studios in London and Brian Roth at Buzzy's Recording in Los Angeles for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, playlist of the music heard here on, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts in time for the 4th of July, all at harryshare.com. And me, I'm on the Twitter, at the Harry Sharer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from New Orleans.